Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole land was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the land will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the land, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the land and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the land in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the land because of the signs which it is given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the land to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and came to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed." And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the freemen and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the word that you've spoken to us. We thank you for what it reveals, for what it unveils about your purposes, about the enemies that oppose you and your church. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see past appearances to the reality of the battles we fight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Early in Revelation, John is caught up into heaven, and he enters a worship service. And during that worship service, a lamb appears and takes a sealed book and begins breaking the seals and opening up the book. After the seals are all opened, seven angels come out with trumpets, 
announcing that the book is about to be read and proclaimed. The contents of the book are about to be revealed. And at the end of that sequence of trumpets, at the end of that trumpet fanfare, the book is delivered to John, a strong angel, a gigantic angel, who connects heaven and earth, who straddles the sea and the land, comes down and hands John the book. John eats the book. It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he begins to speak and to see the contents of the book. About the middle of Revelation, we begin to see what the book is all about. Prior to this, Revelation has been retrospective. It's been a series of visions about the beginning of the mission of the church. It's been a series of visions about the opposition to the early mission of the church. But now at this point in Revelation, toward the middle of the book, we finally get to see what is shortly to take place. Those things that the book is all about. Those new things that are about to happen, that are going to happen soon after John receives the visions, soon after John records Revelation and sends it out to the churches. When John begins seeing the visions of what must shortly take place, he sees a dragon in the sky and a laboring woman in the sky. The woman is clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. She's crowned with 12 stars. She is Israel, the heavenly people, laboring to give birth to the Messiah, the seed of the woman who would conquer the serpent and would deliver humanity from sin, from death, and from the devil. In that little tableau, that little vision that John sees, we see a summary of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is a birth story. The entire Old Testament is about the labor of Mother Israel striving to give birth to the Messiah with the dragon right at hand to devour the child as soon as it's born. That's the story of Adam. God had no sooner formed Adam from the dust of the ground than the dragon was there, the serpent of old, was there to try to gobble him up, to try to bring Adam to his side, trying to make him part of his body rather than God's people and God's body. When Israel came out of Egypt, they're tempted in the wilderness to uh, grumble against the Lord and to turn to idols. When they get settled in the land, the dragon is there to tempt them to worship idols. They build a temple, but before long, the temple turns into a, a, a temple to idols, a temple to false gods. Israel's entire history has been a birth story. Israel laboring to give birth to the Messiah while the dragon is waiting to devour it. And that whole storyline comes to its climax, of course, in the birth of Jesus. What John sees is most immediately about the birth of Jesus. Because as soon as Jesus is born, the dragon is right there to try to kill him. To try to kill him before he can go to the cross. To try to kill him before he can take his heavenly throne to try to kill him before he can do all the things that he's supposed to do in order to bring redemption to the world. At that point, the dragon comes in the guise of Herod the Great, who tries to kill the baby Jesus, who slaughters the infants of Bethlehem uh, and surrounding areas around Bethlehem. That's the climax of the story of the Old Testament. But in John's vision, in chapter 12 of Revelation, The message is that the dragon is constantly frustrated in his plans. He's foiled. He's waiting for the the child to be born. But as soon as the child is born, the child is snatched up into heaven and takes a throne in heaven. And the dragon who is in the sky in heaven is cast out. 
The dragon doesn't even have a chance to try to gobble up this the infant uh, baby, the infant Messiah, because the Lord snatches him up. But he's stubborn. The dragon is stubborn and stupid. And so he goes after the woman. He's been cast out of heaven. He's down on earth, but he goes after the woman. He chases her, but the Lord rescues her from persecution. He tries to drown her with water coming out of his mouth, but the earth opens up and swallows the water. The dragon is like wily e. Coyote. If you remember the old uh, Roadrunner cartoons. He keeps trying to set traps for the woman, and they keep failing. The anvil keeps coming down on his own head. He keeps getting caught in the same traps that he sets for the woman. Then beginning in chapter 13, he calls in reinforcements. He hasn't been able to get the child. He hasn't been able to get the mother. But perhaps he can prey on and destroy the other offspring of the woman. And he calls up monsters from the deep. He calls up two monsters, a monster from the sea and a monster from the land. Who are these? Who are these beasts from the sea and from the land? Well, their origin gives us a clue. The place where they come from gives us a clue about who they are. Throughout the Bible, the sea is a symbol of the Gentile world. The turbulence of the sea is a a symbol of the turbulence, the constant motion, the constant turmoil of the Gentile world, of the world of nations. When Israel is invaded by a Gentile army, it's described as a flood coming over the land. Great sea monsters picture great empires and great emperors. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah, is pictured as a great sea monster. Remember the great fish of Jonah? That's a representation of the empire of Assyria that's going to swallow up not just Israel's prophet, but Israel as a whole. The northern kingdom is going to be swallowed up by the great sea monster of Assyria. This beast is coming from the sea, and he is a Gentile beast. But he doesn't look like a sea monster. He's not aquatic. He's not a fish. He's constituted of several different parts of several different land animals. He's mostly leopard, but he's got feet like a bear. He's got a mouth like a lion. He's a land beast, or a beast coming from the sea who's going to occupy the land. And to get a a little more understanding of what this is about, we can think back to what God did in the original creation and how God created land animals in the first place. God created land animals in two separate categories. There were animals called cattle in the old King James Version. Cattle who were near to human beings. They were created to be near to human beings. They were created domesticated. And then there were beasts, the beasts of the field, who were created as wild animals. Adam already had animals who were domesticated that were to be helpers to him, that provided a kind of throne for his kingship. Animals, domesticated animals, were the technology of the ancient world. If you wanted to farm a large territory rather than what you could do with a hoe, you harness the animal power. You'd harness the power of your animals and you'd be able to do that. If you want to travel longer than you could walk, you'd harness animal power. Domesticated animals were like a throne to humanity. But the wild animals, maybe they were, they're going to be tamed eventually. That's Adam's task. But those wild animals are animals that prey on other animals, animals that are fierce, animals that are, uh, that are uh, destroyers. In the Bible, we see these two kinds of animals combined in the cherubim. The cherubim are the angels that Ezekiel sees 
in his initial vision, the animal, uh, the angels that John sees at the beginning of his visions in Revelation when he goes up into heaven. He sees cherubim who have faces like an ox, they're domesticated, but they also have faces like lions and faces like eagles. They're turned in two directions. They're like the domesticated animals who serve human beings, but they're also like wild animals who prey on other animals. Cherubim are guardians of God's throne. They constitute the throne of the Lord, but they're also guardians who turn their teeth and their talons against the enemies. Rulers are supposed to be cherubic. Rulers are supposed to be like the cherubim. They're supposed to provide a platform, a throne, for their people to flourish and rule. But they're also supposed to be like lions and eagles who turn their talons and their teeth against anyone who tries to attack. This animal is, this beast is mainly made up of, uh, he's made up of wild animals, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. But he represents a kind of rule, a kind of empire, a kind of power that's supposed to be protective. We've seen these four animals before. We've seen these animals before in Daniel 7, our Old Testament lesson. In that vision, Daniel sees separate animals coming up out of the sea, separate animals, first a lion, then a leopard, sorry, then a bear, then a leopard, and then some undescribable beast. He sees a sequence of four beasts that he's told represent four different empires. I don't have time to prove it, but I'll just assert that these empires are Babylon, the empire that's existing when Daniel's alive, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They're the empires that stretch from Daniel's time to the time of the coming of the Son of Man, the time of the coming of Messiah. If you want to remember those, you can do them in rhythm. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon. Okay, you've got it. You kids can do that. March, march out of church today saying Babylon, Persia, Greece. Those are the four great empires of the last part of the ancient world. And they're called up out of the sea in Daniel. The sea is stirred up by the Spirit of God, stirred up by the wind of God. And these four empires are drawn up out of the sea in order to be protectors for Israel. They're supposed to be guardian rulers, guardian empires for Israel. They're supposed to turn their talons and their teeth and their paws against those who would attack Israel. And that's what the empires did, at least in some measure. Nebuchadnezzar was a friend to the Jews. Cyrus, the first king of Persia, the first emperor of Persia, sent the Jews home to rebuild their temple. Rome, for much of their time, was just trying to keep peace in Israel. And as long as you were submissive to Rome, they were pretty good rulers over Palestine. That's the way it's supposed to be in the time after the exile. The Gentile rulers are supposed to be protectors of God's people. The, the, the beast that, uh, that John sees, the monster that John sees, is a composite of those beasts from Daniel. But this beast is not protecting the people of God. That's the big new thing that's happening in the book of Revelation. It's the big new thing that John is uh, revealing that's about to happen in the lives of his readers. The great beast of Rome, which is the empire that exists in his time, is about to turn from protector into predator, from protector into persecutor. Instead of protecting the saints, he's going to prey on the saints, and he is going to overcome them, John sees. 
Overcome has been a key word in Revelation. All through the messages that Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia, he said, "Those who, to those who overcome, I promise these blessings. There are going to be overcomers, but now, in Revelation 13, we learn that the saints are going to be overcome. This is the new thing in uh, the history of the church. Prior to this, Rome had been a protector of the church. You go through the book of Acts, and the Jews are the persecutors of the church. The Romans are either indifferent to the church. They, they, think, they see the conflicts between the Jews and the Christians as intramural conflicts among different kinds of Jews. They're just indifferent to those conflicts, or frequently they intervene on behalf of the church. They protect the church from their Jewish persecutors. That's been the story of the church in its relation to Rome for the first several decades of its history. But now, when John is writing in the 60s AD, just on the horizon, that's all going to change. And Rome, the great bestial bestial empire from the sea, the monster from the sea, is truly going to become monstrous. And Rome is going to turn against uh, the church. But the dragon calls up a second monster to do his bidding. He has a monster from the sea that represents a Gentile power. He also has a monster from the land. And this monster from the land, this beast from the land, exercises the power of the first beast, the power of the sea beast. But he doesn't do it through rule or persecution. He does it through propaganda. This beast, the beast from the land, is a propagandist for empire. He's a propagandist for the cult of the emperor. For the worship of the beast, he forces the people of the land to worship the first beast. He's a court prophet of the empire. He makes fire fall from heaven down to the land, just like Elijah. He does miracles and signs like Moses does. He builds an image, which is also a prophetic task. Prophets are sacred architects in the Bible. Prophets go to, are, are caught up to see visions of the house of God in heaven. And then they bring that vision down to the earth and tell uh, the people, this is what I've seen. Build this kind of sanctuary. Build an image of heaven on earth. Moses goes up on the mountain and sees the pattern for the tabernacle. David receives the pattern for the temple. Ezekiel sees a great vision of a new temple. And he reports that to the people so that they can build according to the pattern of heaven. Prophets are sacred architects that receive the blueprints from God and tell the people to Build a, build a temple as a replica of heaven. This beast from the land is like a prophet, but he doesn't have any heavenly blueprints. Instead, he makes an image of the beast. He doesn't build an image of heaven. He builds an image of the beast, and he forces the people to worship it. And in fact, we're told that he makes the image speak and to command, and specifically to command that those who don't worship the image of the beast should be killed. This sounds pretty spooky. You've got a beast from the land. He's able to build a, an image of the sea beast. And he's even able to make that beast talk. But in the context of Revelation, I think the message or the identity of this beast is pretty clear. The sea represents the Gentile world. The land is the land of Israel. Frequently in the book of Revelation, when you read the word earth, Think land. What's happening in Revelation is concentrated on a single part of the earth, not spread out on over the whole earth. Some, sometimes it's talking about the whole earth. Frequently, most of the time, it's talking about the land of Israel because that's where most of the action takes place. 
This beast emerges from the land as the first beast emerged from the sea. He represents Jews who become propagandists and prophets, court prophets for the empire. People like Josephus, who is a kind of court prophet, a Jew, but one who supports the empire. Or the Herods, who are converted to Judaism, but they are agents of the empire in Palestine. Or like the Sadducees, the priestly class of Israel, who have it pretty good so long as they keep peace with the Romans, so long as they stay on the good side of the Romans, they're at the top of the pile. They're the elites, and so they're happy to have the Romans there because the Romans preserve their status. Or the Pharisees who enter into certain kinds of alliances with the Romans when they're, particular, when they're worried about the church. When they're worried about Jesus, they uh, befriend the Romans and look for Roman help. The beast from the land is, represents Jews who are allied with the sea beast of Rome. And the image of the beast, I think, is a picture of the Herodian temple that the Jews are building. What John does here is unmask the temple of Herod, which looks like a temple devoted to the God of Israel. He unmasks it as instead nothing better than a pagan temple. It's no better than the other temples that are scattered around the Roman world that are devoted to the genius of the emperor and the genius of the empire. The Jews have become cult members of the cult of empire. What's new here in Revelation, the thing that's shortly to take place, is not just that the Romans turn against the church, but rather we have an alliance of Jews and Romans that together oppose the church and persecute. In the process, Judaism is transformed. This is not a matter of Rome and Judaism just added together. Judaism is transformed into something other than it was. It becomes, as it had been for many uh, over many in, in many periods of its history, it becomes an idolatrous people devoted to the power of the empire, devoted to uh, supporting the power of the empire as it attacks the church. The new covenant breaks down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and forms one new humanity in Jesus Christ, the last Adam. That's part of the message of the gospel, that there is a a new kind of human community, a new kind of empire that uh, combines people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people into one. That's the church. But Revelation shows us that there is a false church and a counterfeit new covenant that emerges at the same time that the church is just getting started. Jews and Gentiles combine in the church to worship the living God. Jews and Gentiles, the sea beast and the land beasts combine together to suppress the church and to destroy it. It's a counterfeit form of the union of Jews and Gentiles in the Christian church. It's even ruled by a false trinity, a parody of the trinity. There's a dragon, the father. There's a sea beast, the son. There's a land beast, the spirit. There's even an image of the beast, which may represent the church. This false church, this counterfeit new covenant, is governed by a trinity. It even has its own signs and sacraments and symbols. That's what the mark of the beast is here at the end of Revelation. Everyone who wants me to reveal the the secret of the number, what is the mark of the beast? Are you wearing it? Perhaps you're wearing it right now. Who knows? What is the mark of the beast? Well, in context, this is a sign of the union of this false church. Every kind of people. The small and the great, the rich and the poor, free men and slaves. It looks like a wonderful, international, diverse community that's being 
formed, all marked with the mark of the beast. It looks like a church. It looks like a church that all, where all people are united by baptism, but it's a false church, united by the mark of the beast that's put on the forehead and on the hand. The number of the beast, that's put, the mark that's put on these people is the number 666. And I think that's a multifaceted symbol. The number six is the number of a man, we're told, and I think that implies it's the number of a mere man. The people proclaim the uh, indefe- uh, indefeasibility of the sea beast. Who can defeat the sea beast? Who can fight against him? But his number is just the number of a man. The number 666 matches numerically to the name Nero, Caesar, spelled in Hebrew and spelled a little bit differently than you'd think, but it does kind of match. But I think the fundamental significance of the 666 number goes back to the Old Testament. The only other place where this number appears in the Bible is in the book of Kings, where it's the number of the talents of gold that Solomon brings into the land every year. That indicate that seems like an indication of Solomon's wealth. It looks like a good thing that he's bringing in all this gold. But in the context of the law, we know that that's a, uh, that's a violation of the laws of kingship. Kings are not supposed to multiply gold. They're not supposed to multiply horses and chariots. They're not supposed to multiply wives. And the beginning of Solomon's apostasy is his import of 666 talents of gold into the land every year. That's, I think, the immediate reference for this number. And it means what it's, it's a sign that the sea beast, the empire, which was supposed to take up part of the Davidic vocation of protecting Israel, of maintaining the temple, that quasi-Davidic Gentile empire is going the way of Solomon. It's going apostate. And the number 666 indicates that it's linked up with Solomon's apostasy. John unveils the threats that were on the horizon for the first century church. That's uh, Revelation is about things that must shortly take place. John is not talking about, in the, uh, immediately talking about, he's not prophesying about the things that, things that happened in the 21st century or the 18th century or whatever. He's talking about things that already happened in the first century. But if we learn to look at the world through John's eyes, then we can begin to read our world too. John wants to train us in a a political hermeneutics of suspicion. He wants us to look suspiciously at the powers that are around us, to uh, question the appearances, and to question whether those appearances are actually veils for monsters and dragons. He wants us to see through the appearances to see the idolatries that are at work in our political life. We can think of obvious examples where the state has become an idol. We can think of totalitarian systems from the last century. We can think of the uh, the, uh, the uh, personality cult that still holds in North Korea. But there are various forms of totalitarian idolatry of the state that are at work also in liberal democracies. There are marks of the beast. There are uh, passwords. You have to to, uh, meet certain requirements to participate fully in liberal democracies. 
In order to participate in public discourse, you have to check your comprehensive doctrines. You have to check your most basic convictions at the door and translate those basic convictions into some kind of generic secular discourse. You have to wear the mark of a beast if you want to participate in in public discourse. If you want to keep your flower shop or your bake shop open, you have to speak the language of diversity. You have to wear that placard. You have to wear that badge. It may be coming to the point where uh, in in various professions uh, you have pressure to conform to the same kinds of standards. You want to continue to be a medical doctor. You have to conform to the standard, to the liberal standards of our time. You want to continue to be a professional counselor. You have to conform to the standards of the present time. John is not only showing us how to unmask the first century monsters, but also how to unmask the monsters of our own time. But one of the things he's teaching us here is that the sea monster is never alone. The political monsters that we face are never by themselves. They always have monsters from the land as propagandists and court prophets. There are always churches who will defend whatever totalitarian idolatrous state is out there. We can think of easy examples. We can think of examples of churches that capitulated to the Nazi regime or Orthodox churches that cooperated with the Soviet Union. Those are kind of comforting examples because they don't really touch us. But there are plenty of examples in our own country, in our time, where churches are supportive of the kind of totalitarian regime that is being constructed. Churches that are supportive of the fascism of the new sexual establishment. Churches that will cheer on any American war without asking whether it's just or not. Churches that support a secular, idolatrous, humanistic internationalism, but also churches that support a secular, idolatrous nationalism. We need to be as aware of the conflicts that we have with churches who support the sea monsters as we are of the sea monsters themselves. Today, I think, as in the first century, we face not just an idolatry of the state, but we face an idolatry, uh, we face a, a combination, an alliance of a sea monster and a land monster, a sea beast and a land beast, church and state forming a false union against the gospel. But that's not a reason to fear, to be in despair, to be dismayed. Uh, the main message of Revelation is about the triumph of the saints, the triumph of the martyrs. And a side message of Revelation is about the defeat of the dragon. When we first see the dragon in the middle of Revelation, he is exalted in heaven. He has a position of authority and power. From that moment to the end, he progressively declines. He falls from heaven to earth. He goes from the land to the seashore. He goes from the sea down to the abyss, comes up out of the abyss, but only for a short time until he's finally thrown into the lake of fire. The dragon is doomed. All sea beasts are doomed. All land beasts, every church that takes its stand against the faith, against Jesus Christ, in alliance with the sea beasts, all of them are doomed. Jesus is on his throne The Lamb holds the book. 
And Jesus will reign until all his enemies are placed beneath his feet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see through the deceptions of our own world, eyes to see through the appearances so that we can see the true enemies that we face. We pray that we would be faithful to our Lord Jesus, to the land, to the true land, that we would not become propagandists for power, propagandists for uh, the sea beast, whatever form that sea beast might become, but that we would cling wholly and fully to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We pray in his name. Amen.